as we open God's word this morning, let's just come before him in prayer. Let's ask him to open our minds and our hearts and to do a real work in us. Let's pray. Yes, Lord, we've just sung that song, Refine as Fire. My one desire is to be holy, set apart for you, my master. Lord, as we open your word this morning, may that be our desire, is to be changed so that we can serve you as our master. And so teach us, we pray, as you taught your disciples, Teach us now, Lord. As you pointed to attitudes in them, point to those same attitudes in us today. Because we have them. And Lord, may you be glorified as we leave this place, having been empowered by your Spirit, and then as we obey you. Be glorified, I pray. Amen. Well, we are continuing in our studies in the book of Luke, and we're in chapter 17. And I'd ask you to turn to verses 1 to 10 this morning. Luke chapter 17, verse 1 to 10. And Jesus said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostles said to the Lord, Increase our faith. And the Lord said, If you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, Be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Will any one of you who has a servant, a servant ploughing or keeping sheep, say to him when he is coming from the field, Come at once and recline at the table? Will you not rather say to him, Prepare supper for me and dress properly? And serve me while I eat and drink. And afterwards, you will eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, We are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Those of you who've had children and uh, you, you were a child once yourself, I'm sure, must have had the experience where your parents say to you, please do this, do that, clean your room, tidy the lounge, wash the car, take out the rubbish, whatever it is. And then the excuses start. Remember the days? You might be in those days. And after a while you get, kind of get tired and you say to them, listen, Just do it. For heaven's sake, just do what I ask you. Anyone been there? Or is it just my family? I see the smiles. You see, Nike weren't the first to come out with the phrase, just do it. We as parents were. Actually, God was before that. 
And that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. Nike just commercialized it. You see, that same attitude is in us too. And be honest this morning. When the Lord asks us to do stuff, whatever it is in your life, do the excuses start up? Can you hear the Lord saying, just do it? You see, sometimes we find Christ's standards are quite, quite hard, right? And they are. They're impossibly hard. And the excuses come. And then when we do obey Him, we want someone just to recognize that we've obeyed. And just to give us a bit of a pat on the back. What a good boy you are. You've listened to the Lord. You see, it's kind of human, isn't it? Well, the Lord's going to look at this attitude and warn His disciples. You see, because the Pharisees had been falling into temptations to not believe Jesus. They've been setting a real bad example. But Jesus warns His disciples. He says, don't be like them. You yourselves, watch yourselves. I'm not going to be with you forever. Where are we going? We're on the road to Jerusalem. What's going to happen there? I'm going to die. And they didn't get the full impact yet. But He's preparing His disciples as they walk on to Jerusalem. If you remember, look, glancing back at chapter 15 and right through to this current passage this morning, it's all one discourse. You see, the Pharisees had been turning away non-Christians. They'd been turning away sinners. They'd been not associating with them. And from that time, Jesus starts teaching His disciples. And He's still busy teaching them. It's one long discourse. And He'd been looking at various topics as he's been walking along teaching them. He'd been, he'd been looking at this example of the Pharisees where they'd been pushing away sinners and not pointing them to a father who would love sinners. He'd been pointing out to his disciples that they must watch out and not serve two masters because it was impossible to do so. He'd been pointing to the sin in the Pharisees of twisting the law and asking his disciples, do you do the same to suit yourselves? You see, he still continues to teach now. And this morning he comes to the last part of this discourse, and then he carries on his walk to Jerusalem. And he warns them about temptation and various other things linked to temptation. So what's this temptation Jesus is speaking to about? You see, the Pharisees had fallen into the temptation of not believing Jesus at His Word. But not just that, they were causing others to stumble by teaching them false truths. Pointing them away from the truth. They'd fallen for the temptation, but were tempting others to do the same. And so, the first topic that Jesus brings up with His disciples is, watch out for temptation. It's always going to be with you, He says in verse 1 and 2. It will always be with you. As long as you are a human being, you will be tempted to sin in some way or other. Yes? Anyone not tempted? Just check yourself. Are you still here? You see, temptations will be with us as long as we are humans. Other words, other phrases used in the original for temptation is stumbling blocks will always be with you. Objects which cause you to fall. 
Bait sticks is the original term used here. What happens when you touch a bait stick? The, the trigger stick, the bait stick, is the bit that you put the peanut butter on. Or oh, in those days they used other things. Alright, I know from catching rats, you put a bit of peanut butter on the, on the plate, the bait stick. And when that animal touches that sensitive stick, it's caught, hopefully. Well, that's the same phrase used here in the original. Bait sticks will come along our way, causing us to stumble and to be caught by them. Watch out. I found an interesting thing in India, this is an aside. They built their castles there to defend, right? Against people coming inside. And they built a special little stumbling block there. And in, in the, the, the um, defense works back in the time of our Lord, the Romans built these in specifically as well, they, they built in a little stumbling block. And it was a stone set apart slightly from the surface, so it stood up just a little bit. When you knew where it was, you'd miss it. But if you didn't in your fighting, you'd fall over it and that would give the defenders an advantage. A stumbling block. Interesting. So in life, we're going to come across these stumbling blocks, says Jesus. And as long as you're human, watch out for them. You will always be tempted. Unbelief is just one of those stumbling blocks that Jesus has been pointing to. But now Jesus builds on that. He says, watch out for these stumbling blocks. But there's something else you need to watch out for. He says, watch out that you do not become a stumbling block to someone else. You see how he's building? And it's not just watch out. He says, woe to him who becomes a stumbling block. There is judgment for the one who becomes a stumbling block to others. What does he mean by this? You become a snare to someone else. You become a stumbling block to someone else. Well, way back in the Old Testament, remember David, King David, and on a beautiful day he noticed this beautiful woman bathing. And you know the rest of the story. He was tempted to lust after her. He fell for that temptation. He had a husband killed in the end, and then he married her and thought he'd got away with it. But he didn't. Because the prophet Nathan came to him on a day, and told him the story about a lamb. And when David heard the story about a lamb, he knew, God knew. And the prophet said to him in Second Samuel 12, verse 14, he says, By this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. You see, David thought no one knew, but everyone knew. And by his action, he brought, brought discredit, not just to the name of the Lord, but to Israel itself. And Israel's enemies and the enemies of the Lord were laughing at Israel and the Lord because of what David had done. He'd become a stumbling block to them. Do you get what Jesus is saying here? What does Jesus say? He says, watch out that you don't become a stumbling block to others. It would be better for this person to have a large millstone hung around their necks and to be thrown into the depths of the sea than to land up and face God's judgment for the throne. What's he saying? You see, those days they had these big millstones. It's not the little hand one. This is the major one. This is one you will never pick up, right? Solid stone. If that was tied around your neck and you were thrown into the sea, what are the chances of you coming up again? Less than zero. 
That's the point. You see, Jesus always pushes it further. If that's time around you, it's better for you to go through that judgment than to face God because you've become a stumbling block to someone else. Do you see why Jesus puts a woe on it? It's serious. Be careful that you don't become a stumbling block for who? For any of these little ones. Was Jesus talking about children? He could have been talking about children, but he wasn't specifically talking about children. He was saying to any of these little ones, anyone who is searching for the kingdom, do you see the heart of God here? He loves people to come to him. Be careful that you do not become a stumbling block to any of these little ones. Like these Pharisees who were turning sinners away. They've become stumbling blocks. Don't you do the same, my disciple. You see, the, the warning goes out to anyone who would be teachers. These disciples would become teachers, wouldn't they? Once Jesus was no longer there, they would become teachers of the good news. The Pharisees were teachers, supposedly, of God's law. You will do great damage if you are to be a stumbling block to someone else. You see, he's not just speaking in their times, he's speaking in our times too. To us as teachers who teach the law, we need to make sure that what we teach is what God wants us to teach and according to his law. We have to make sure as those who teach that we live the way that we are teaching. Otherwise, we become a stumbling block to others. And as normal Christians living in society, we are to make sure that we live consistent lives before the world. Otherwise, we become stumbling blocks for those who are searching. Because they look at our lives and they say, but that doesn't measure up to what you're saying. And they turn away. You see what Jesus is saying? The only stumbling block people are to have is not with us, but is with the cross of Jesus Christ. Because he says so. 1 Corinthians 1.23 People are to stumble over Christ and Him crucified. That is all. What do I mean by that? You see, some people will hear that Jesus died for their sins and they will push it away because they don't want to believe. Well, the Lord says some will do that. It will become a stumbling block to them. But our behavior should never be a stumbling block to others. Let them have the argument with the gospel message, not with us. We are to walk lives that are circumspect before the Lord, not falling for temptations. That's what Jesus is teaching his disciples. Now it leads on to verse 3. He builds it. And first, firstly, when you look at this, you wonder, these seem to be four little topics here. He's kind of just put them together. Well, he hasn't actually. He's building a case. He's saying to his disciples, you will always be tempted to sin. But watch out that you don't cause someone else to sin. What are one of those ways? Well, it's going to come in this whole area of forgiveness. People doing wrong against you. How are you going to react? Because the world will be looking. And so he says to them, verses 3 to 4, Be on your guard. Pay attention to yourselves, says the Lord. When your brother sins, now, we all know what he's going to say next. You see, aren't we so quick as human beings to always spot the other people sinning? The disciples weren't any different to you and I. 
It's really quick to see sin in someone else. It's really hard to see it in yourself. Jesus says, watch out. When you see your brother sinning, and it's probably genuine sin that you're seeing, watch out. Pay attention to yourselves. But there's something you need to do. You need to rebuke that brother. Now, I just want to stop here for a little while. You see, there's this thing out in the world that says, who are you to judge me? You all heard it right? You speak to anyone, a non-Christian, about the gospel, and they say, who are you to judge me? How come you guys think that you're better than anyone else? Well, Jesus says, he's speaking to your brother, right? Fellow believers, if you see your brother in sin, then it's your responsibility to rebuke him. To do it gently in love, says Ephesians. To speak with love to your brother or your sister. There's a responsibility. And I'm afraid the church today is not taking that seriously anymore. Because we allow any old sin among us. And if we allow sin among us, what happens? It will fester away like yeast rising. And it will touch everyone after a while. And so here's the principle, and I'm not going to expand any more on that this morning, but be on your guard. When you see your brother sinning, rebuke him. Speak the truth in love. But, Jesus carries on, if he repents, then forgive him. Be as quick to forgive as you are to rebuke. That's what the original says. It's, it's, it's a quickness about it. If your brother Sins rebuke him, but as quickly, if he repents, then forgive him. There must be genuine repentance. We don't just forgive, you know, like little kids. They keep doing things wrong and say, I'm sorry, and then they redo it again, I'm sorry, and they don't actually mean I'm sorry at all. They just know I have to say that once I've done wrong. Yeah? That's not what we mean here. When you see your brother in sin, rebuke him if you see genuine repentance. If they ask you to forgive them. Then forgive. And do it quickly, says Jesus. And now he ups the ante. He says, and if they sin against you, now this is where it gets personal. Because isn't that the hardest? When people sin against me, the heckles are up. How dare they? Well, he says, if your brother sins against you seven times a day. Now, it doesn't mean get your calculators out. And that's once, twice. No, he's saying, if your brother sins to you, it doesn't matter how many times he sins against you, then you be as quick to forgive him seven times a day if he comes to ask you for forgiveness, right? Infinity. And I put that symbol up there for you. Forgive him for infinity. That means as many times as it happens, forgive. What's Jesus saying here? Forgiveness is one area where you can stumble and cause your brother to stumble. If you are hard-hearted and you do not forgive, you are going to cause someone to stumble. Watch out. Guard yourselves, says Jesus. Don't fall for that temptation. The poet and pastor George Herbert said it this way. It's a beautiful little saying. Listen to it. He said this, He who cannot forgive breaks the bridge over which he himself must pass. I'll say it again. He who cannot forgive breaks the bridge over which he himself must pass. You see, why are we to forgive? Because if you're a Christian, haven't you been forgiven much? We've been singing about that all morning. We've heard about it this morning in that video clip. 
Have you not been forgiven by God's grace? Were you not a sinner who was hard-hearted and yet Jesus Christ found you in your hardness of heart? He turned your face to Him. He gave you life where there was no life. He forgave you. He showed you grace, undeserved mercy. And so will you not forgive someone else? You see, what should motivate our forgiveness? It should be our love for Jesus Christ. He has forgiven me. That's why I can forgive. I don't know why the Lord's bringing this passage up here this morning. There might be some of you sitting here this morning and people have done things against you and you've got that grudge and it's growing and growing and festering in you. The Lord says forgive. If they've come to you and asked for forgiveness, forgive. Why? Because Jesus Christ has forgiven you. You see, your faith activates forgiveness. I don't forgive just because I forgive. I forgive because Jesus has forgiven me and my faith is in Him and so I do the same. I forgive because of my faith in Jesus Christ. And so I urge you this morning, forgive. Don't fall for the temptation of bearing the grudge. And so Jesus steps onto the whole area of faith. Verse 5. Look at what he says. The apostles said to the Lord, Lord, increase our faith. You see, Jesus has been giving this whole long discourse. And all these things that the way they're supposed to live must have been heaping up and heaping up and heaping up. And they're feeling probably more guilty and more guilty as we do when we come before God's Word, right? We're supposed to be feeling guilty. But God says, just put your faith into action. And so they say, but Lord, for, just increase our faith. Our faith is too small. We can't measure up to this. What does Jesus say to them? He tells them this little saying. If you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, and they're probably walking along the road and there's this tree, right? You could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and plant yourself in the sea and it will obey you, says Jesus. If you just activate your little bit of faith that you've already got. See what he's saying? He's saying to them, you don't need more faith. Just activate the little faith you've already got. And it will do amazing things. In other words, the little bit you have, you're not using. Now you want more? You see, the Pharisees had put on, on themselves this little saying. You, you know, in um, uh, where is it? I want to find my place here. In Matthew chapter 17, we have that, and it's not a parallel passage, by the way, where Jesus speaks about the mustard seed, and if you've got enough mustard seed, you'll be able to say to this mountain, lift yourself up, right? You know that passage? Well, the Pharisees had taken the saying on board, and they'd kind of assigned it to themselves. We are the movers of mountains. See the pride? We are the movers of mountains. And they got the saying going, describing themselves. And then there was also a little saying known in the Near East that if something was impossible, it's impossible like telling this tree to go plant itself in the sea. It was a, just a saying. And so Jesus takes that saying and what the Pharisees have taken to themselves and he says to his disciples, don't be like them. 
if you just activate your little mustard seed of faith, you will tell this tree, plant yourself in the sea, and it will obey you. You see what it's taking? What's generally used? And he's saying, just activate what you have. Don't ask for more. So do you need to be, do you need a laying on of hands to get more faith? Does, does, does Jesus say anywhere about laying on of hands? No, I don't see it anyway. How do we get more faith? Do we, do we need more faith meetings? Let's just look quickly. No, I don't see anything about faith meetings either. How do we activate our faith? That little mustard seed of faith. How? Jesus tells a story to illustrate that. Look at the last verses. Verses 7 to 10. He tells this little mini parable about this servant. He says, which one of you has a servant plowing or keeping sheep? And you say to him when he's coming from the field, come at once and recline at the table. What master would do that? Here's a servant coming in. You can see the guy haggard. He's been working hard. The master doesn't say to him, hey, bro, you've been working hard. Come here, sit at the table. Let me serve you. What master would do that, says Jesus? No. He would say to the servant, now it sounds harsh to our ears, right? He'd say to the servant, listen, get yourself dressed, get yourself tidy, make my food, serve me, and once I've eaten and drank, then you can eat and drink. Why does Jesus make this point? He's saying, because any servant would know, my duty is to serve my master. It doesn't matter how tired I am. Likewise, he says, you should say of yourselves, we are just worthless servants. We are here to do your bidding. You see what he's saying? You want to activate your faith? How do we do that? By obedience to the Lord. Why? Because that is what we are to do as servants of the Lord. We, sh- we, do- we don't need to have a pat on the back. We don't, don't need to have special attention because the duty of servants, the duty of a doulos, a servant, is to serve his master. So it mustn't be a big thing for us. Jesus says, just serve me, obey me, because you are my servant. The word he uses specifically there is the word bond servant, verse 10. We are unworthy servants or bond servants. Our ears have been nailed to the doorpost as a sign that we now belong to this household for the rest of our lives. And you can do with us anything you want. That's what bond servant was. And so he says, be obedient to the Lord. Do your duties to Him. And in that way, you will activate your faith. So that little bit of faith you've got, you want to grow your faith, the Lord says, just be obedient to me in the little things. You see how he's going back in his argument? Be obedient to me in the little things. And your faith will grow. Be obedient to my word and your faith will grow. Trust me, your faith will grow. Don't expect thanks for doing what you should be doing. But isn't the amazing thing that the Lord doesn't just let us serve Him soullessly. He pours His mercies out on us at the same time. By all rights, Jesus didn't have to give us anything. He's already done the great work on our behalf, right? But because of His great love for us, He, on top of that, pours out His blessings on us. 
And when we obey Him, He pours out His blessings on us. And He grows our faith. But we should be doing it, not out of a sense of duty, but because we love Him. You see, there's a danger here. There's a danger here that we can just obey because we have to. And that's where you'll land up in cold legalism. If you obey God just because you have to, and not because you love Him, you've missed the whole point. And you will land up as a legal Christian. Someone who just keeps rules, soullessly, coldly. No relationship at all. You see, elsewhere Jesus taught, John chapter 14, verse 15, If you love me, keep my commandments. Do you see the attitude we're supposed to have? If you love me, keep my commandments. Paul says in Ephesians 6, 6, Be doing the will of God from your hearts. Don't just be soulless about it. Do it with a full heart. Obey the Lord and your face will grow. John, the apostle, said it this way. And he's one of these guys who was a disciple, right? He said, serving God is a delight, not just a duty. And we obey Him because, yes, because we love Him. And then the psalmist back in Psalm 40 said this, I delight to do your will, O my God, yes. Your law is within my heart. Do you get what Jesus is saying right through these now? He's saying, don't yield to temptation. What is some of that temptation? When someone does wrong, forgive them. Don't be tempted to hold grudges. How does that play out? Trust God with a little bit of faith you have to do what He will do and then just obey Him. So how does that affect you and I? I want to put four questions to you under so what. First question is this, and I'll put it up here for you. Is the example of your life a cause of stumbling to others? Think about your life this past week. Is the example of your life a cause of stumbling to others? In other words, are you practicing what you preach as a, as, as a Christian? Non-Christians around you know, on Sundays you go to church, hopefully they know. But in the week, do they see the difference? You see, the world may not understand the doctrines and the principles we hold to, but they sure understand our behavior. They can see when the way we say we live and the way we live don't meet up. And it speaks volumes. It brings discredit to the Lord's name and it causes a stumbling block to them. It gets between them and Christ. A follow-up question to that is, are you teaching others to take shortcuts with God's Word? Because that's a form of stumbling block. What you say and the way you live before your children, who know you really well, is there a difference there? When they see you losing your rag continuously, what does that say about Jesus Christ? Is it causing a stumbling block to them? When they see you taking shortcuts with God's Word, God's Word says, do this, do that, do this, and you say, well, yeah, not today. They see you taking shortcuts. It causes you to become a stumbling block to them. 
When someone comes to you for advice, do you give them godly advice? Do you look up the advice in God's Word and give them good, sound, theologically sound advice? Or do you just give them normal human advice? Because that could cause a stumbling block to someone. The second question I want to put to you is this. Are you as ready to rebuke others for open sin? Because you can't see what's in their hearts, right? But you can see what they do. Are you as ready to rebuke others for open sin as you are to forgive them when there is repentance shown? When you see your brother or your sister in sin, are you going to go and confront them about it because you've seen it? It's your responsibility to approach them in love. We're too scared to do that today, but we need to. We've got a responsibility. Are you willing to do that? And the follow-up from that is, are you as quick to forgive when you've been sinned against? Or do you hold those grudges? You repeatedly forgive because you've been repeatedly forgiven. Famous dead guy said this, We are to be sensitive to sin, but not closed to grace. We are to be sensitive to sin in ourselves and others, but not closed to grace. That should be our heart attitude. I forgive because I am forgiven. And then thirdly, you've been saved by grace, but are you walking by faith? You've been saved by grace, but are you walking by faith? Galatians 5.25 says this, If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Are you willing to put the little bit of faith you have in the hands of a great God and trust Him with it by the way you obey Him? It doesn't matter what He's putting you through. Whether He's putting you through suffering, through sickness, through trials. Are you willing to trust Him with that little bit of faith you have so that He can build your faith? Or do you want more? That means He might do with you what you're not expecting Him to do. That means He might send you where you're not expecting to be sent. Are you willing to trust Him with your little bit of faith? He will make it grow. And then lastly this morning, are you serving God this morning as a believer without strings attached? Are you a true doulos, a bond servant to Jesus Christ? Or have you always got strings attached? Whenever God teaches you something in His Word, it's yes but. When God wants to send you somewhere, it's I'll go but. I need you to sell your home and go and work for me in East Asia. Yes, but. I want you to speak to your neighbor next door. Yes, but. I'll be embarrassed. Are there always strings attached to your obedience and to mine? Or do we respond to God without question as a matter of our duty and our love for Him? Is that the attitude? I want to leave you this morning with a verse from 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and I'm going to put it up here. Have a look at it. May I challenge your heart this morning in this whole area of obedience before the Lord. Not being a stumbling block for others. This is what it says. For Christ's love 
compels us. I'll stop there. It's a whole other sermon. I won't go there now. Christ's love compels us. It doesn't force us, but it makes us want to do something without stopping. We are compelled by Christ's love. Why? Because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And He died for all. Why? So that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for Him who died for them and was raised again. There's our motivation in our obedience, in our trust, in our love, in, in not falling for temptation. Here it is, that we are to live no longer for ourselves, but for our Master, Jesus Christ. Is that the attitude of your heart? No strings attached. You see, if you live in that way, the world will see your life, your children will see your life, and it will point directly to Jesus Christ. But if you live a disobedient life, if you live a life full of moans and groans every time Jesus asks you to do something, your children, your neighbours, your colleagues at work will see it, and you will become a stumbling block to them. And Jesus says, woe to him. There's a warning and a blessing for us in this passage. Let's pray. Lord, in your own time, you've brought this passage to us this morning as a whole church. Lord, you know the hearts of every single person here, including mine. And Lord, we just pray this morning, help us to love you, help us to obey you, so that we will point to Jesus Christ and so that others will not see our lives and be put off and not want to know about Jesus Christ because of our disobedience. Lord, save us from the temptation of not listening to you. Lord, draw us to yourself in your grace so that we can show that grace to others. Amen.